Good morning, I'm Jo. Um, please open up your Bibles to page 8. We'll be reading from Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, starting from verse 1. Let's read together. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in China and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Hi everyone, my name is Rebecca. Our second Bible reading today is from the book of Revelation, so from one end to the other. Page 995 in the Blue Bibles. We're going to read from chapter 7, starting at verse 9. Revelation chapter 7, starting at verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God for ever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Keep 
Bibles uh, open there at Revelation chapter 7. Let me, let me pray as we look at it together. Heavenly Father, your word is full of such precious, precious things. This morning, Father, we pray uh, that you would fill us by your spirit to open our eyes and our minds to see and understand those precious things in your word and open our hearts to drink them into our very being um, so that our lives might be pointed in the direction of your great plan in Jesus. And please help me uh, to explain your word truthfully so that you might be glorified. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an uh, outline of the talk inside your information sheet that might help you follow along. And uh, you'll see, if you've got it there, the outline begins with half a saying. Okay, so I want you to finish the saying for me. Uh, ready? When the going gets tough. Oh, come on, come on. When the going gets tough. Yeah, complete rubbish, right? Like that's just absolute nonsense. That's why I love, um, that's why I love inspirational sayings because so many of them are like, you think about it for two seconds, you go, that's just stupid. And so it's fun to make, make fun of them, you know. This is one of those sayings that most of the time is pretty much useless. Okay, yeah, I mean, everyone can be tough enough for some things, right? But eventually, something is going to come along that is tougher than you. And when that time comes, when the going gets too tough, then the tough pretty much collapse or crawl into the corner and roll up into the fetal position. You know, but when the going gets too tough, there's not much you can do. And, and actually... This doesn't help much. You know, when, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. It, we, need a, we need a better life philosophy. We've we got we to gotta find a better way of fini- finishing the inspirational phrase. Okay, that's, that's our goal. When the going gets tough, yeah, be, being tough is not going to cut it. And it's very important that we get this right because when the going gets tough, that's when it's hard to press on with all the things that are most important in life. And so especially if you're a Christian, when the going gets tough, the question is, well, how am I going to press on as a follower of the Lord Jesus? When the going gets tough, what's going to stop me from giving up on Him? When the going gets tough, how am I going to keep on trusting in God's promises when everything's screaming at me that they mustn't be true? Or think about sharing your faith. You know, when the, when the going gets tough, it can just be pretty discouraging, can't it? Um, copying all the rejection and, and hatred or just disinterest. When the going gets tough, what's going to keep us pressing on talking about Jesus and sharing our faith in him? When the going gets tough, what's going to keep you pressing on? See, the problem with saying when the going gets tough, the tough get going. That's just another way of, you know that message from society, when the going gets tough, you've got to look inside yourself and you'll find inside yourself the strength that you need. Well, no, actually you won't. Eventually, when you look inside yourself, what you'll find is a small, scared, weak, vulnerable little child who just wants to crawl up in the corner. See, looking inside yourself is not the right answer when the going gets tough. We need a better place to look. Okay, We need a better vision than that when the going gets tough. And Revelation chapter 7, I think, gives us pretty much the best vision of all 
in the Bible, if you want to know how you're going to keep pressing on, striving to be godly, to follow Jesus, to live for him, to share your faith, when life gets difficult, what's going to keep you pressing on? Um, This is such a helpful passage. And in fact, the whole book of Revelation is that kind of vision to give us something to look at when the going gets tough. Uh, Revelation was uh, basically one big long vision that the risen Lord Jesus gave to the Apostle John in the first century for him to pass on to these tiny little churches in Asia that were suffering and struggling under intense persecution and opposition And these baby Christian in these churches, they were wondering, how are we going to survive? How how are we going to press on? It all seemed too much. And this revelation that God gives John is all about the fact that the Lord Jesus, who died, is risen, he's ruling now, and he's returning. And that's where you've got to look. That's where you've got to look to be able to keep pressing on. So today I want us to uh, look particularly at chapter 7 to see how this vision that we read uh, in chapter 7, how the Bible's vision of God and his purposes, how's all that going to help you and me to press on um, when the going gets tough? And it does it in two ways. You can see I've basically got two sections in in the outline. I'm going to spend more time on the first one, I think. But the first thing it does is, is that this vision shows us that God will fulfill his promise in the end. Okay, now you notice I said his promise, not his promises. Uh, I mean, it's okay. Yes, God will fulfill all his promises in the end. But there's actually one specific promise here that John, that God, that Jesus wants us to know. This is the biggest promise that has ever been made in the history of promises. And this vision is to show us that promise won't fail. Okay, the, this, all of this scene is about what John sees in verse 9. Okay, so have a look at verse 9. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand. Okay, so John sees this unimaginably huge crowd of people and they're all crowding around the throne of God in heaven, okay? This is a a scene of the throne room of God uh, and they're crowding around God the Father and the Lamb, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Now, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you'll know that um, the Lamb represents Jesus in the book of Revelation uh, because Jesus is like a sacrificial lamb. He was the lamb, the one who gave his own life as a sacrifice for our guilt and our rebellion when he died um, on the cross. But this is a strange sacrificial lamb. See, normally when you sacrifice a lamb, it doesn't end up too good for the lamb, right? Uh, It ends up dead. But not this lamb. That is, yes, he did die, but Jesus is also the Lord of life. And so he rose in victory and he's now ruling at the right hand of the Father. Okay, so that's, that's the scene, this countless multitude. Uh, and these are clearly, this is a scene of all the saved. Okay, all the people who God has redeemed. Um, and this is the scene of them around God in glory. This is a vision of everyone who will be with God for eternity. 
and they're crying out, you see in, in verse 10, the whole lot of them are saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Okay, so that's, that's what John sees. And as he looks at this crowd, there's two things in particular that he notices about them. Okay, the first thing he notices is that they are perfect. They're perfect. That's, they're dressed in white robes. That's, that's a way of saying these people have absolutely no stain of shame or sin or corruption. They are blameless and pure. That, that's what all this represents, utter purity. But the second thing that John notices, I think this is the bit that would have shocked him a bit because he, you know, the way he was brought up, he'd look at them and think, oh, these these shining white saints, well, they must be from God's special chosen people, Israel, right? Wrong. He looks and these are people, he says, from every nation, tribe, people and language. Okay, these are people from all the most barbaric, ignorant, wicked, violent groups all over the world. And here they are, not just saved, but perfect and pure embracing one another, embracing God's throne, singing together with their hearts full to the brim. See, John looks at this scene and there are Aboriginal Australians and white Australians. There are Arabs and Israelis and Assyrians and Persians and Kurds and Turks and Armenians. There are Russians and Americans and Cubans and Venezuelans. There are North Koreans and South Koreans. There are Chinese and Japanese and Tibetans. There are, Indi- there are Indians and Pakistanis and Afghani- Afghans. There are Serbs and Croats. There are Burmese and Rohingya people. There are ex-Buddhists and ex-Muslims and ex-Hindus and ex-ancestor worshippers and ex-pagans and ex-atheists and ex-middle-class, selfish, secular, materialist nothings. They're all there. They're all there together around the throne. And you know, when John saw this, I think he would have been a bit shocked, but he would have realized immediately that what Jesus was showing him was a little glimpse of the fulfillment of the biggest promise in the history of promises. This was the promise that God gave to one man, Abraham, right back in the beginning. It was actually just after our first Bible reading. Our first Bible reading, Genesis 11, God, in judging humanity, confused their languages and spread them out everywhere in different tribes and peoples and nations. And then in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, very famous verses, he makes a promise. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth, or all families, all tribes, different ways of translating, will be blessed through you. And, I mean, this this promise is pretty hard to digest, okay? But God keeps repeating it time and time again, and it keeps getting bigger, right? So chapter 13, verse 16, God says to Abraham, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, 
so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. And then at the end of Abraham's life, Genesis 26, 4, he says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring, all the nations on earth will be blessed. Just imagine how far-fetched that promise must have sounded to Abraham. At this point, God had started with one person. Okay, The whole earth had rejected God, turned away from him, and, and descended into wickedness and corruption, and God just calls one man and rescues him from his idolatry and, and then gives him this promise that through his offspring... He would save so many people that it'd be like trying to count the dust. Even by John's day, that, that promise must have just seemed, seemed impossibly huge, mustn't it? Even though the crucial event had happened, the offspring of Abraham, the descendant who would bring this all about, the Lord Jesus, had come and died and risen, but still so few had turned to Christ. And these struggling little churches, they're, they're discovering that, you know what? We thought it'd be easy telling people about Jesus, but actually, it's a pretty scary business. It's a dangerous business. They were being killed for it. So do you see why God shows John this vision, this little sneak peek of all the saved in heaven and then tells John about what he saw? Uh, let, let me help kind of illustrate it. Uh, imagine... I've got a 10-cent coin here, okay? I've got a 10-cent coin. Um, imagine I, I come up to Pete, right? And I say, Pete, just, I, I just want you to hold this for a moment, this 10-cent coin. Okay, it's 10 cents, right? Oh, I should mention, like, I hope, I hope everyone... <laughs> no, no, you're going to give back in a sec. You're going <laughs> to... Wrong guy. No, well, I should mention at this point, um, I presume everyone knows, like, Pete... I hope it's public. Like, Pete sings in the shower, okay? Like, he sings a lot and really loud. So, Pete, just hold it for a second. I'm going to turn that into $10 trillion. But, give back, give back, give back. <laughs> no, you can keep your 10 cents or you can have $10 trillion, right? Because what I'm going to do, I, I'm going to take this 10 cents, turn it into $10 trillion. I, I've installed a recording system just outside Pete's bathroom, right? And every morning when he sings in the shower, I'm going to record it, okay? And I'm going to turn this into the biggest hit thing that the world has ever seen, and it's going to become $10 million, right? But it starts with this. I'm just going to put it away in, our, um, in my high-tech safe. This is like the TARDIS. It's actually bigger than it seems. Uh, so, right, so that's, that's going in the safe, okay? And then Pete goes on, you know, having his shower every morning and singing like he always does, and I say, oh, I'll take care of it. And Pete's like he... He's going, where's all this money going to come from? And every now and then he sort of sees me come in with five bucks, right? With ten bucks and disappear into the, into the safe room. And after ten years, Pete's going, okay, so far I've counted $127 that I've seen. You know, what's going to happen? And he sees the trolls on Facebook posting memes about, you know, the shower, seeing who went down the plug hole and all this kind of stuff. And he's thinking, this is hopeless. And then one day I say to Pete, hey... It's okay. It's okay, Pete. I've, I actually, I've installed a camera in there. So just, I'll just give you a peek, okay? I'll just give you a look. I told you it's bigger than it looks in there, isn't it? That's... How's Pete going to feel the next morning when he has his shower? He's going to be pumped, right? He's going to be singing 
more loudly and soberly than ever before, right? This is why God showed this vision, not for money, of course. But the reason God showed John this vision is so that the early Christians would know, one, his promise will not fail, he's fulfilling his promise, and two, if you didn't get it, heaven will be huge. Heaven really will be huge. I mean, in terms of the number of people who will be saved, we only see tiny little bits of what God is doing, don't we? And from our perspective, evangelism is just so painstakingly slow and frustrating. And Jesus warned us, didn't he, that most people would reject our message, not to be surprised when it's really hard work. And yet, from the very beginning, God promised that heaven would be huge. And he is doing so much more than we can see to bring people to Christ. And in fact, in our day, the gospel has already gone to so many tribes and languages and, and peoples and nations, hasn't it? Heaven is filling fast, brothers and sisters. It, it's God's doing. And we're seeing that promise fulfilled, even though we see it in drip format for us. But this is from one to a crowd like the dust in the earth. And as soon as God has finished gathering all those people who he has marked out to save, then Jesus will come back. You do know, know that, don't you? Well, let me put it the other way. Do you know why Jesus hasn't come back yet? Listen to what Jesus told his disciples uh, just before he went to the cross in Matthew chapter 24, 9 to 14. This is, was relevant for believers in the first century and it's just as relevant for us. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. See why Jesus hasn't come back yet? Because the gospel hasn't been quite been preached to all the world yet. He still has more people to bring into the gates of salvation. People from places where we just haven't managed to get yet, from the jungles of Brazil uh, and the Saharan Desert and uh, the mountains in Central Asia. That's why we send out and support missionaries, isn't it? And of course, Jesus, he's got more lost and wicked and rebellious, rebel, ignorant people that he's going to save from places where the gospel's already gone. People from Nepal, where Kate and BJ are. People who don't yet know Jesus, but they will one day. People from Namibia, where the Websters have gone. Who, who don't, people who don't yet know Jesus, but they will. People from Spain, where we're sending Miriam. People who don't yet know Jesus, but they will. And people from Bosley Park and Fairfield and Witherall Park and Edensa Park and Cabramatta and people who don't yet know Jesus, but they will. They will, one day. All of that, God had in mind when he made that promise to one man, Abraham, 4,000 years ago, 
God had it already all planned out, down to the last person, down to the very last name in this countless crowd. He had it all planned out before he created the universe. So how, how, how does this vision encourage us, or how should it encourage us to press on when the going gets tough? Well, uh, it, especially, it especially encourages us to press on in evangelism, doesn't it? Uh, here we are, we've rolled up to another December mission. I don't know about you, but I find it tiring sometimes. Year after year, here's another mission, here we go again, get up the energy, or I just find it tiring when I go to the same coffee shop where I'm trying to share the gospel with the same people and it just never seems to go in and it's tiring. Having a crack, another crack at sharing my faith. Here's God's promise. He really is filling up with heaven with so many more people that you and I can imagine. And he's doing it through ordinary people just being real about who they are and about their faith in Jesus and just going, yeah, I'm going to put it out there. I've got hope in Jesus. I'm, I believe in Jesus. Do you want to know about him? That, that's how God's filling heaven. One person at a time. And this encourages us to keep going and to trust that one day that person who you keep bashing him over the head, one day God will flick the switch and the lights will come on and his spirit will come in and they'll believe the gospel. But whatever it's going to look like, God's promise won't fail. God's promise won't fail. That's what helps us to press on in evangelism. But there's a second way uh, that John's vision in this chapter helps us to press on, not just in evangelism, but also in just being a Christian. Uh, press on in faith and in godliness, in living for Jesus. Uh, and the way it does that is by showing us what eternity is going to be like for people who persevere in Jesus until the end. That comes out of the second half of the passage. Um, this isn't sort of another vision that John sees. It's just more explanation that he gets given um, of the same crowd that he saw uh, in verse 9. So uh, if you see there in verse 13, we're introduced to one of the elders. We, we don't really know much more about this elder, except that this is a heavenly figure who's talking to John. And this elder, he does... He does the teacher thing. You know the teacher thing for people like me who've been out of school a long time? Remember back, you know teachers when you're at school, like they always ask you questions, right? And you're going, I don't know. How, how would I know that? But the really annoying thing is they ask you the question, you don't know, and you know very well that they do know the answer. So you're going, what are you asking me for, right? You know the answer, I don't. John doesn't seem to get annoyed, but that's what happens here, right? The elder goes, he asks the question, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And John, beats me, back to you. And so the elder helpfully explains it, like, like a good teacher. And the answer in verse 14, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Uh, now, for the sake of time, we're not going to go into a lot of details here, and especially, uh, I'm not going to get into all the debates about the whole issue of the Great Tribulation um, or anything like that. There are lots of arguments in the Christian world over, um, is there going to be an increased time of suffering and persecution or disasters or whatever in the lead up to, to Jesus' return? Um, 
One reason I'm not going to get into that here is because I don't actually think it's relevant to this verse. That is, I think it's pretty clear in this verse that the great tribulation that um, it's talking about here is simply the trials and sufferings that all Christians are called to persevere through um, in this life. Uh, You can ask me later if you want to know why I think it's that. But the, the more important thing that this verse tells us that I do want to focus on is that if you want to be included in that crowd of saved people around God's throne in heaven, the only way to be there is through faith in the Lord Jesus. Because faith in Jesus is the only way that you can be forgiven and cleansed from your sin. You can only be forgiven and cleansed through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for us. See, all of us, um, when we stand before God, we are dressed in filthy, smelly, disgusting clothes that are fouled and stained by our selfishness and pride, our corruption and sin. We are completely unfit for heaven and we are only fit for God's righteous judgment. And the only way that your clothes and mine, your spiritual clothes, can be made white is by washing them in blood. It's, um, it's such a striking image, isn't it? Their clothes made white because they washed them in the blood of the Lamb. This is one of those kids don't try this at home moments, okay? This is not going to work with your mother's white wash load, okay? Uh, it doesn't work with normal clothes. But Jesus' blood with spiritual clothes It does work. Because the point is, having your sins forgiven is one million times more important than anything else in life. It really is the most important thing. And the only way your sins can be forgiven is through Jesus' death, by handing your life over to Jesus as your King and trusting Him in your Saviour. I really do hope that you know the the, um, assurance and peace of uh, that forgiveness from Jesus in your own life. Um, And also in our our Bible teaching and witness as a church, it's just so important that we keep clear on this, okay, that we don't get bored of this, that we keep clear that the heart of the good news of Jesus um, is not social justice or restoring creation uh, or Christian community, It's about having your sins forgiven through Jesus' blood by trusting in him and giving your life to him. And that's what takes a person from death to sure and certain hope of eternal life. And uh, then speaking of eternal life, that's, that's what the elder goes on to explain a bit more. Not just who is going to be saved and how, but what is salvation going to be like? for everyone who's in Jesus. Um, So just listen to me. I'm going to read verses 15 to 17 again. We're we're not going to spend long on this. But as I read this, think to yourself, if you belong to the Lord Jesus, if you trust in Jesus as your saviour and you've given him your life as your king to live for him, this is what forever is going to be for you, together with everyone, not just you on your own, together with everyone who belongs to the, the Lord Jesus, who God will save Verses 15 to 17. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. 
Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. If you're in Jesus, um, your eternity will be enjoying God's presence and protection and provision. Uh, it, and that's going to be more blissful and joyful and peaceful and exhilarating than any pale shadow of bliss and joy and peace and exhilaration that we've experienced in this um, valley of tears. Um, now, there are actually lots of echoes of the Old Testament. Again, we don't have time to go back um, and look at them all in this passage, but this is rich with echoes of, for example, when God brought Israel out of Egypt in, and brought them to Mount Sinai and God came down and they just got a, a hint of what it means to be able to be close to God, to have God's presence and God's glory with them and protecting them. They, they couldn't get too close. They could only get a glimpse because of their sin. Or it's got echoes of Isaiah chapter 49, which is when Israel were in exile. Again, they were in, in slavery. And God was pointing them forward to when he would send his servant, who would be the Lord Jesus, to bring them out of slavery. And again, they would experience God's presence and the richness of what it means to be close to God. Just uh, listen to these few verses, Isaiah 49, 8 to 10. This is God speaking to the servant he would send, the Lord Jesus. He says, this is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritance. To say to the captives, come out and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of living water. See, what this elder is explaining to John is that all of those things from the Old Testament where God's people just got a hint of what it is to have God truly present with us, they were all just looking forward to Jesus and looking forward to the salvation that Jesus has guaranteed for all those who turn to him. And, and what that will look like, what we will experience in heaven is what it really means to have God's presence intimately and permanently with us. And, and we'll discover that that closeness to God will mean that you never, ever want anything again. Well, you're going to want heaps of stuff, except that it'll all be completely satisfied in the Lord Jesus. Our shepherd, everything you could ever want will be satisfied fully in Jesus. So how does this part of John's vision help to motivate us to press on in the Christian life and in evangelism? Uh, Rebecca and I, most of you know, spent 10 years in Chile uh, with the family, living and serving the Lord there. Um, one of my best friends there was, is another Aussie lecturer at the Bible College, a guy called Michael. Uh, and, and he spent eight years as the principal of the Bible college where I worked. That was a really tough gig. It was a very hard um, 
thing for him to do and it took a big toll on him. It was extremely stressful um, and difficult. It took a toll on his physical and then eventually his, his mental health started to suffer as well. What did Michael do about it? Well, uh, Michael's an architect and so he and his wife bought this little plot of uncleared land. It was just scrub bush um, in the back of nowhere, two hours away from the city, halfway up the Andes Mountains near this little town and Michael started the long, exhausting job of clearing the land first. He designed a house, of course, that was what he did. Uh, clearing the land and then building the house himself, years of hard work and blood, sweat and tears and countless weekends. Now, why did he go through all that extra pain? Because he knew that at the end of that road would be that. Asados, barbecues, up in the mountains. That's it. That's what kept him going. And if you ask him, was it worth it? He'd say, you bet it was. Why is it worth pressing on in the Christian life when everything seems so hard? Why is it, why is it worth struggling against those sinful desires and saying, Lord, help me to live a godly life? Why is it worth struggling away once again to share the news of Jesus with the people around? Because of what lies at the end. That's why. Because of the vision we've been given of what lies at the end, not just for me, but for us, and not just for us, but for the countless multitudes, every soul whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, and the end of the road will be pure, complete, utter satisfaction in Jesus as we discover that everything our hearts could ever have longed for is in him. So let me ask you today to finish up, um, will you commit your, yourself again to living by God's vision? Will you commit yourself to pressing on, not in your own strength, you don't have the strength in you, but will you commit yourself to pressing on in living for Jesus, struggling against sin, pressing on in believing his promises, pressing along in coming to gather, grow and go together as a church to encourage your brothers and sisters? Will you commit yourself again to that vision of doing everything we can to bring more people in, to reach the people around us as another December rolls on with mission and Christmas? Will you commit yourself to doing what you can to bring others into contact with that news of forgiveness through Jesus' blood, even though it's tiring? Because, brothers and sisters, I know it's tiring, but it's so worth it. It's so worth it. That's why God shows us these things in his word. It's so worth it. Because when the going gets tough, ah, oh, we've got to finish it, don't we? When the going gets tough, the t what am I talking about? We're not tough. No, it's... All right, here it is. Here it is. You ready for me to finish it? When the going gets tough, the wise... It's not about being tough. When the going gets tough, the wise fix their eyes on Jesus and press on. Let me pray. Father, we um, have such a small and limited and clouded vision as we struggle through this life and stumble through. Sometimes um, we see clearly and sometimes not so clearly, but we thank you, Father, that your word is so clear and powerful, that you've 
shown us from the very beginning that amazing promise to Abraham and, and now you've shown us through Jesus and through the Apostle John that that promise you are finishing and fulfilling and filling up that promise. Father, you are filling up heaven. And we pray, Father, that you'd help us each day as we wake up to fix in our minds a vision of the Lord Jesus seated in your very throne with you in heaven and of all those countless multitudes with their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. Please help us to fix that vision in our minds and to press on in your strength. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.